We're looking today at the fellowship of sacrifice. And if you look at your bulletin out, outline, the first thing I want you to think about, think family, not strangers. We come back to the first understanding of the Greek word for fellowship. And that f first understanding is relationship. We are, get it now, we are united with Christ through repentance and faith. And in that unity, God calls us into a very close-knit relationship with every other person who has experienced new life in Christ. This encompasses the world because God has His people everywhere, when you think about it. And that's because uh, God has disseminated the gospel through missionary outreach. So there are believers, Christian believers, everywhere in the world. But that said, and that believed, those other believers throughout the world are by and large strangers to us. If we meet, when we meet, it will be on common ground. That is a shared faith and love of Christ. But practically speaking, we cannot and will not meet every believer on earth. It's just impossible. Someday in glory, yes. But that'll be then and there, but not here and now. What we share now is a spiritual connection with them. We believe in the same Christ. We hold to the same doctrines, the same truths. We're doing the work of God in His way. All of those things being taught to us from the same Bible, we're all using the same book. And that brings to us that responsibility. But that's just one part of the story. The other part, the more pragmatic, rubber meets the road part, is the community of believers within our locale. And more specifically, within our own church. Here is a microcosm of the larger entity. We are of, like other churches, gathered around a certain set of doctrinal principles in loyalty to Christ and in loyalty to our conscience, what we believe the Scripture teaches. Consequently, we work hard, not relating to each other as strangers, but relating to each other as family. And I say family because we see each other every week. We pray for each other's Needs. We exhort one another to holiness of life. We charge our unbelieving friends and relatives to come to Christ so that they can be car become part of the family of God. We charge each other to uh, be supportive of the Thornville Church financially and to support our missionaries who share our doctrine and our philosophy of life and on and on it goes. And it's all family oriented because it comes, those kind of things come out of the family of this church. Now this sharing in each other's lives is also part of the definition of koinonia, this word for fellowship. It's on the partner side, partnership aspect of the word, and you'll be able to see that. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures now in which this word koinonia is translated sharing in our modern translations. And it's important for you to see that because this is all part of what it means to be in fellowship with one another. Let me list them for you. Romans 12, verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's this word. 
Or again, Paul writing, and we read this this morning, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Romans 15, verse 26 and 27. Or 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Speaking of the Macedonian churches. Or again, because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 13. Or from 1 Timothy, command them, the, the wealthy, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 18 and 19. And then from our text, Hebrews 13, look at verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now there you have it. In every one of these verses, the word translated share is this Greek word for fellowship that we have been studying. And it is clear from the context of every one of these verses that the sharing under discussion in these verses is not that of sharing your ideas or sharing your thoughts or even the doctrines of the faith, but rather the sharing of material resources to meet the physical needs of others in the family. Such sharing does not mean that you have to be wealthy or even comfortably secure financially. This kind of sharing begins firstly in the heart of love, for God and then for all His people for whom sacrifice is in order. Now that's a very important aspect of koinonia and we need to understand that. Secondly, this is a command from Christ, not a suggestion. So that really bites into our idea of stewardship. Have you ever attended a benefit dinner for some agency? A benefit dinner. Often there will be no specific charge for the meal. Instead, they will announce a suggested donation to cover the cause. Because it is a not-for-profit organization, they cannot dictate a fixed price, but they can accept donations. Well, what about this word, donation? What comes to mind when you hear that word? Well, they're asking for a donation. Well, I looked the word up in the dictionary, and it comes from the Latin donatio, meaning to present or to give a gift. We all know that gifts are not compulsory. The nature of a gift is spontaneity. There's no obligation whatsoever. You may give or you may not give. Your choice is yours. And there certainly is room for the concept of gift when we talk about contributing to the needs of other brethren. 
We find this in the Jerusalem church in those early days of their organization. We read in the book of Acts, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Acts 4 verse 32. And this word for shared is not. It is not koinonia, which is significant because the sharing here is completely voluntary. And that's why there's a different Greek word here. But that's okay because there has to be a place in our hearts for helping people financially just because we want to do it and not because we must. And so Paul uses a different, or the writer of Acts, Luke, uses a different Greek word. By the way, the Greek word, the Greek language is like the English language. You can get every little shade of innuendo or meaning. They got a word for it. It's just like English. You can say someone is a bad boy. You're a bad boy. Or you can say, you know, you're a wicked kid. Different words, different connotations. Greek language is the same way. But, but, when the word, when the word is koinonia, fellowship, as in all those Bible verses that I just gave to you, the giving is a command, not voluntary. It's not a gift. It's an obligation. But this is not how most appeals for money are made. Instead, appeals are made via the media or newsletters or ads on TV that are intended to arouse pity and a sense of benevolence. There's an ad running on television right now that runs about this time every season, and it pictures Jewish families suffering from lack of food or whatever, and the appeal is to donate money for a food box, promising the gift a note to be included in the box that will attribute the gift to the International Fellowship of Christian and Jews so that the people of Israel will know that America stands with them in their hour of need. And the pictures are of poor people huddled together at distribution sites waiting to get their care package from the distributors. And there are many such appeals for money by hundreds, if not thousands, of organizations, Christian in name only, or genuinely, genuinely Christian as well. And so I'm saying pity is a viable motive for helping others. But in these scenarios, the impetus for giving is the most heart-rending appeal of the day. Because money is limited, we tend to go with the appeal that most touches our sensitivity, whether it be Jewish refugees or abandoned children of foreign orphanages or victims of natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and the like, and on and on and on and on it goes. And they're appealing to our sensitivity, our moral sensitivity to help our fellow man. All that, well and good, fine. This, however, this, however, is not the basis for our Christian giving not the basis. Listen again. Concerning the Macedonian relief effort for the oppressed in Jerusalem, Paul writes, Indeed, they owe it to them. Whoa. <laughs> Paul, back up a little bit here. This is a little strong, isn't it? 
No, they owe it to them for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with their material blessings. Romans 15, verse 26 and 27. Or again, 1 Timothy 6, 18. Command them, the wealthy, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Command them. Whoa, command them? Yeah. Nothing is said here or in any of the other verses that we've noted above about pity being the motivation for sharing our material possessions. But we are commanded to share as part of our obligation of fellowship within the body. And this moves the response of giving away from feelings to obedience to the will of God. In other words, we do not have the option of not participating. We cannot sit on the sidelines uninterested and uninvolved. You might ask the question, well, is, 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 is there no room for pity then? Well, of course there is. In fact, John writes this, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. Now John is obviously asserting that there is something drastically wrong if as believers we cannot be moved with compassion to meet a need another Christian has, especially when we have the material possessions at our disposal to meet such a need. I think it's a serious barometer of the genuineness of our faith or, or, or the lack thereof. You got the money or the means, you see a brother or sister in need, but you have no pity on them, no compassion to help. But all I'm saying is that too many people exempt themselves from helping because they're not Move to do so. Self-absorbed people are usually so concerned about their own affairs as to be oblivious to the needs of others. But the man in John's charge, it says he sees his brother in need and yet has no pity. It surely is a sign of defective love. Defective love. But what if such a person was more attuned to sharing in others' needs based on God's command? Now, waiting to be moved. Now, it is best if love is the motivation. But let me ask the question, does love have to be present to obey? Love for the cause. Not love for God, I'm talking about love for God. Listen to Paul as he talks about our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Okay. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Doing this, 
You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 20 and 21. Now here, there's no love lost. But there is need for food and there's need for drink. And while we likely would not be disposed to help an enemy out of love, God's command to do so holds weight with the believer, and so we respond. Yes, feed him. Yes, give him something to drink. By the way, the classic example of that is Elisha in the Old Testament. When the Syrian army surrounded the city and was about to destroy the people of God, and God struck them with blindness, and they were all brought into the city. And the king says, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? He's saying that to the prophet. What does the prophet do? He feeds them. He gives them something to drink. Asks God to remove their blindness and send them back to their home country. That's a godly response. See? We are commanded by Christ. Share with God's people who are in Need. Romans 12, verse 13. Thirdly, the sharing, the koinonia, is a partnership in the need. Now, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, get this point. The sharing, the koinonia, the fellowship, is a partnership in the need. See, what I mean by that? Well, let me illustrate. Every year, about this time, we begin to see people from the Salvation Army standing in front of the retail stores, ringing a bell in what has been called the Red Kettle Fundraiser for the Salvation Army. People passing by are solicited to drop coins or dollars, hopefully more dollars than coins, into the kettle, which will help supply food and clothing and so on for people in need. And we believers walk by those kettles all the time, but so do the people of the world. Now, when Joe Anonymous from the world throws in his quarters, is he sharing koinonia? Is he fellowshipping in the need of the recipient? The answer is no. He is just making a contribution to the needy. Second question, when we believers drop our money into the red kettle, are we in fellowship with the recipient? The answer, again, is no. We are simply making a contribution to the needy. No one has to be a Christian to do this. Benevolent charities exist all over the USA, and some of them are organized and supported by the most immoral, obscene, corrupt, and wicked people that you will ever find anywhere. A lot of Hollywood people are involved in charities. And for motives that border more on self-promotion than on love for humanity, and more on tax breaks than on true charity, people will give to the needy. They will. And most assuredly, as they give, there is no love of God in their motives. There is no obedience to His divine will in the motives. 
God is just as far from their thoughts on Red Kettle Day as He is on Sunday. But when we read these charges in the Bible to share in the needs of the saints, the word is fellowship. And so God is not commanding us to make a donation to the needy out of our resources and then walk away content that we have done our part. No, rather, we are called to participate, koinonia, in their need by making, get it now, making their needs our own. To quote John Murray from his commentary in Romans. This is far more personal. This is far more intimate than dropping quarters into a red kettle for people you do not know and will likely never have anything in common. This is how the charge to the Corinthian church is fulfilled in us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25 and following, There should be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Observe here that it is the relationship of fellowship that brings about the partnership in fellowship. We're all spiritually joined at the hip, so to speak, so that what happens to one happens to all. Where you go, I go. Where I go, you go. We walk together, not temporarily, simply to complete a project, as we might do in the workforce, with each going his or her separate way when the project is complete. No, for the believers, the charge to love one another, to care for each other, to extend help and kindness to the brethren is never over. And it's never over because these virtues are ever operative because the need never ends. You just move from one person to the other. You're always going to have, Jesus said, what? You have the poor with you all the time. They're always going to be there. And this is why we read of those early Christians of the Jerusalem church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That is to say, they loved in unity and they thought in unity. He goes on, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Acts 4, verse 32. Observe, they were not simply throwing money at the problem or at the need and then walking away feeling good about themselves. Feeling good that they had made a contribution. No. They entered into the need by sharing what they had with those who had little or nothing. Notice in this day and age, in the Christian community, there's no welfare here. There's no state intrusion. 
There's no special agency of the government to which people could go for food stamps and the like. But the church, the church, obeying God, reached out to others in need. We've lost that in America. We say, oh, well, no, we pay our taxes and the government can do this, the government can do that. And we begin to talk about the smallness of our pocketbook or the smallness of our church. God won't hear it. And I'm going to show you in the next section, section B, principles of the fellowship of sacrifice. Number one, fellowship in another's need is a privilege. It's not simply a duty. All of us at times wrestle with the problem of insufficient funds. Probably more so in our day than in recent history with people losing their jobs or their houses are in foreclosure or the banks are so tight-fisted that they won't loan loans. And so everyone is feeling the pinch. The sharp rise in food and fuel prices contribute to the escalation of inflation so that our dollar shrinks, shrinks, shrinks more every day as it loses its buying power. My wife is a running commentary on the grocery store's weekly escalation of the food bill. She came home yesterday, do you know that the beans are now, it's three bean cans of beans for two dollars. I used to get them for 50 cents a bean. And every week Donna gives me a report on the escalation of what's going on at Kroger's and Myers and so forth. Well multiply this by all the items that are needed to run a household. Heat bills, electric bills, insurances, clothing, cleaning supplies, auto repairs. And it doesn't take long before a change sets in on how we begin to think about money. We become introspective by concentrating on our own needs, not the needs of others. We rationalize saying, well, <laughs> I have needs too. Or, I can't help everyone, give me a break here. And the economic downturn of our country right now plays into the devil's hand to discourage us, to foster fear, to suggest the lie. Well, God understands that you can't share what you don't have. Like Obamacare, God will give you a pass, an exemption, on His command to partner with the needs of the brethren. Well, let me say that poverty, poverty, if this were you, if this were me, poverty is no hindrance to the fellowship of sacrifice. What, after all, is sacrifice if you have the money in the bank? Now, brothers, we read, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing koinonia in this service to the saints. 
and then they, they did not do as we expected. <laughs> that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Paul's taking um, contributions from Achaia and Macedonia, two provinces, big provinces of Greece. He's taking contributions to take it back to Jerusalem because the big church there in Jerusalem is suffering from persecution and also from famine that was going on in that part of the world at that time. And he's saying, this little, this, the poor churches of Macedonia, uh, they're so poor, we weren't going to ask them for a gift. We were just going to go and kind of do our thing and slip in, slip out, move down to uh, Achaia, the, the richer part of Greece, to uh, Athens, to Corinth, to the big cities, and we were going to get our contributions down there. But uh, they got wind of it, and, uh, and they pleaded with us for the privilege of partnering in this project. And they did not do as we expected. Paul says, well, you know, we were just kind of expecting like a token gift. You ever do token gifts? Somebody comes to the door and they got a canister. You're not really all that thrilled about the particular project. It might be muscular dystrophy, cancer, some such thing, organization from the world. And so we throw in a couple dollars and so on. But we're not going to break the bank over that. And Paul's saying, you know, we didn't expect a lot from that. Boy, were we fooled. We were fooled. Out of their deep poverty welled up tremendous generosity. This is a rebuke to everyone who uses poverty as an excuse to become stingy with their resources. The Macedonian churches were little country assemblies like our own. Jerusalem, on the other hand, was a church of thousands. Corinth was a wealthy church. So who would help? Who should help? Well, big church or no, Jerusalem was under severe persecution, and this large church had large problems. Thousands of members created thousands of issues. And so the poor churches of Macedonia dug deep. Paul says, they were under severe trial. They're not the only, Jerusalem's not the only place that's being persecuted. And then on top of that, they've got extreme poverty. And yet they gave to the astonishment of the Apostle Paul because they viewed sharing in the fellowship of the Jerusalem brethren a privilege, not just a duty. We've got a long way to go. We've got to change our thinking and change our attitude. Number two, principle. Enriching others through your sacrifice is commendable to God. Let me ask the question, how many times does the word enough, the word enough, enter your vocabulary when you are contemplating your participation in the needs of others? Well, if I give so-and-so the money for their heat bill, I'm not sure I'll have enough to pay mine. I have bailed out so-and-so three times in two months, and I think that that's enough. 
After all, it's not the amount of the gift. The thought is enough. I can afford $50 to help you, and that should be enough to tide you over the hump. Brethren, the whole idea of sacrificial giving is that you may not have enough at the end of the day to live as comfortably as you could had you not given your funds to someone else. That's the sacrifice part of the giving. Does your fellowship with the saints ever include sacrifice? Would you dare think of depriving yourself of a dinner and a movie so some brother and his family could have dinner, period? Now in all this, I'm not talking about a person who's lazy. I'm not talking about the professional leech on others. No, Paul taught, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread you eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 through 12. Those kinds of people should go hungry till they learn to obey the Christian work ethic. But there are people, there are people who for no fault of their own find themselves in desperate situations. How does 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 influence your thinking? We read it this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus emptied himself of his glory, his wealth and position, so that your spiritual needs could be met. There was the condescension from glory, the humiliation among men, a bloody cross, a thorny crown, a criminal's execution, all your punishment, all your debt to God. And he paid it all. We sing the chorus, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You owe. I owe. He made you and me rich by impoverishing himself. And this is our example of sacrifice in giving. Principle three God is glorified, and you are blessed. When you sacrifice for the needs of others. When God comes into a person's life, a radical, a radical change occurs. The spiritually dead come alive. The sinful, self-centered individual is crucified with Christ. And a person eager to please God and help others is born. It's called the new birth. 
Hate for God is replaced by love. And selfish competition with others is replaced by generosity. It's marvelous how this happens. Listen, as Paul talks about the man who was a thief. He was a thief before coming to Christ. And here's what he says. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands. Why? That he may have something to share with those in need. Ephesians 4 verse 28. When does a thief show true evidence of knowing God? Here's the answer. When he stops being a taker and becomes a giver. When he works hard with his own hands, not just to pay his own bills, but so that he has something to share with those in need. This is the turnaround that the gospel produces in a person's life. And without this kind of change, a person's conversion is suspect. Now because it is God who does His work within. It is also God who gets the glory. This is what distinguishes the benevolence of the believer from the charitable contributions of the world. The people of the world want the credit. They want to be known as philanthropic individuals. It looks good on a resume. It plays well in the media. It makes nobody's famous. Contrast that to what the Bible says about our fellowship in sacrifice. Paul writes, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. No praise God for your generosity in sharing koinonia with them and with everyone else. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 through 13. What's the principle here? I mean, look at it. The Corinthians are doing the work. Uh, they're the ones that are being generous in sharing and fellowshipping with their material items with those in need. But God is getting the credit in the form of thanksgiving and praise. Uh, uh, why does God get the credit? Paul answered that. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your, rightness, your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion. Oh, 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 oh. I get it. God is gifting to me. God is granting to me 
God is making me financially stable with surplus so that I can be generous to others. So, he should get the credit. Wealthy King Solomon admitted, Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19. We've been learning that in the adult classes. We've been going through the principles on finances for the family and we've been learning that God is the one that enables us to make wealth either through the circumstances of life or good health, mental acuity, all of these skills. And secondly, He owns everything in the earth including what you have. We're just stewards. So, what a privilege then when you think about it. What a privilege, brethren, that our generosity with God's provisions should bring glory to Him as we enter into the fellowship of sacrifice for others. It is evident that God's grace is operative in your life. Now the philanthropic benefactor of the world, he doesn't want God to get the credit for his generosity. No, he wants the credit for himself. His idol is money and the object of his worship is himself. So his giving is seldom sacrificial. He gives to the needy of his world he gives to the needy of his world, but he does not share in the need. He will throw money at the problem so long as there is no jeopardy of his own compromise of lifestyle and desires. So what about all these billionaires that give their money? They're involved. Yeah. If you have 800 billion and you give 400 million in charity for the year, Brethren, when you give your tithe of your little amount that you make, percentage-wise, you're giving more. They give to the needy of their world by throwing money at the need. They don't enter in and share in the poverty. We, on the other hand, consider the needy of our world our world is the body of Christ. To be our brothers and sisters and because we are in fellowship with one another, we can and we do say with Paul, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share, voluntarily is the word here, to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 89. And you know that Paul by trade was a tent maker. And what he's suggesting here is that when we were among you, Thessalonians, we worked hard night and day so we could preach to, the, preach to you without being a burden to you. You didn't have to support us. We supported ourselves. You know what man's greatest sin is? The first sin is pride. Pride in self. Those that are proud of themselves do not repent, have no humility. 
They do all that they do to gain their own glory and their own pat on the back. But God has called us into a fellowship. And that means that we are to have the fellowship of sacraments. We don't just throw money at people. We share in their needs. Care for them. And brethren, I'm warning you, the day is already here where if you don't get a hold of this principle, you're going to be sitting out in a pasture somewhere all alone because the world is coming to knock on your door in terms of persecution. And God's people better know how to fellowship with sacrifice. Our Lord, bless and honor your word. Stir our hearts. I fear that a lot of times our principles for giving or we might say charitable work are adopted from the world, not from the scriptures. We look at these early Christians, boy, they struggled. They were getting beat up by the authorities. We read in Hebrews that they lost their properties. Their properties were confiscated. They were thrown into prison. They were beaten. They were tortured to death. All of these things happened to them, yet they wouldn't give up their faith. And they even had people to go and visit those in prison, thereby jeopardizing themselves for such a visit. But they did it to be an encouragement to the brethren. We know not what is coming in our future, but we know God who holds the future. I pray that you'll help us to get hold of these principles of fellowship. I like what Paul said to the Macedonian churches. They benefited from the Jewish doctrine. Christianity comes out of the Jewish faith. Those principles of God, knowing God, the scriptures, all of those things. And so the Gentiles owed them. We owe, Lord, we owe all those that have struggled, struggled for holding to their Christian faith. Right now in Kenya, right now in Kenya, in Somali, Christians are being killed for no other reason than their faith. Help us to have a caring heart, a fellowship heart. Help us to be open to the idea of actually entering in and suffering with those who suffer. And if that means a bit of deprivation on our side, a bit of sacrifice, so be it. You are our example, leaving glory to become part of humanity that you might take on our debt and pay for it in full. For anyone here outside of Christ, they're not in the family of God. They don't know God. They're estranged from God. He's a stranger to them. I pray that today, Lord, you would come by your Spirit, draw such a one to faith in you. Grant them that repentance of selfishness, lack of humility, that pride, that arrogance, that know-it-all spirit. Lord, bring them in humility to the foot of the cross. Help them to see that this is what sin costs God in order to wash it away and to cleanse it. And if they will not have Christ, if they will not have God in their life, then they will miss out on life eternal. Honor and glorify Jesus in whose name we pray.